Reading. Please rise for the reading, reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1 to 10. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. You may be seated. This is the most important thing that I will say today. Preaching from the word of God. To have God for a king is better than to have man for a king. I go for a run about three times a week as far as time allows. And when I run, I often listen to audiobooks on my iPod. And since I enjoy history... I've listened to many biographies of English kings and queens up till the 1600s. Richard I, Bloody Mary, William the Conqueror, and so on. And sadly, the reign of those in the 1500s and 1600s saw an awful lot of bloodshed between God's people, Protestants and Catholics, depending on the leanings of one who is on the throne. Often the right of secession was questioned and the ruler had to take harsh steps against intrigue or they came to the throne through intrigue and often both. Despite effective foreign and domestic policy exercised by some, they routinely had personal defects, moral defects. They persecuted many. To have God for a king is better than to have man for a king. Our passage is from 1 Samuel chapters 7 and 8. is about the people of God's fundamental harmful decision to have man as a king. And the king that they end up with had a profound deficit of character and moral defects and persecuted many. The passage starts out well enough. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Sounds good. So Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, the fertility goddess, from among you. 
Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Put away your foreign gods. How often have God's people needed to hear that? Jacob said it to his family. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. 700 years earlier. Joshua said it to the nation of Israel 200 years earlier. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And now here comes Samuel and says it again. Because there will always be gods competing for the number one position. God says, I am God, and there is no other God besides me. He doesn't say it to boast. He just says it. It's true. He is God. He is Lord. And to give full allegiance to anything or anyone else is not to live in conformity to reality. So what do you give your allegiance to? Even though God commanded them not to serve other gods, he knew they would. He said to Moses that after Israel entered their own land, they would rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant. And sure enough, all through the book of Judgment, uh, Judges, into the life of Samuel, they did exactly that, repeatedly. So Samuel says... Put away your other gods. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Don't make sure you include gods among your other god, include God among your other gods, but serve him only. In your heart, on the throne of your heart, there is room for only one. If Baal, then no room for God. But if God, there is no room for Baal. And um, the word sanctuary literally means holy place. Lord, prepare me to be a holy place. You sit on the throne of my heart. So what are your gods? Probably not idols, though it might be. Uh, your car. But what sits on the throne? What is it that is most important? Career? Family? The affirmation of your friends? Cable? Coffee? There's room for all of these things in our lives. All things are good, but not on the throne. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And so Israel did. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and served the Lord only. And God said if they did that, he would rescue them from the Philistines. And he did. When Israel gathered at a place called Mizpah to fast and worship, to have Samuel pray for them, the Philistines came to do battle against him. Israel gathered in one place. Now's our chance. And Israel was afraid. Remember what happened last time the Philistines met them in battle 
In two days of fighting, 34,000 Israelite soldiers fell. So they begged Samuel to pray for them. That tells you that they served the Lord. They didn't scramble for their weapons. They said, pray for us. So Samuel offered a sacrifice and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord did not help the Israelites to fight. The Lord went before them and actually fought their battle. He thundered from heaven. He threw the Philistines into confusion. And Israel simply did the cleanup. They struck down the Philistines, and the Philistines did not enter Israel again for a time. Samuel set up a monument, a rock that he named Ebenezer. The hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which we sang entirely by coincidence this morning. That's very cool. God is good. But come thou fount of every blessing, hymn 35, Verse 2, here I raise to thee an altar. That's an alteration. It was written, here I raise mine Ebenezer. That verse makes reference to this verse. Ebenezer means rock of help. It means that God has stepped in and put to flight Israel's enemies, the Philistines, and our great enemy, Our great enemy is sin. The actions and the thoughts that are not in line with God's perfect character and will. And these sins pollute us all. There's not one of us in this building who has not sinned at one point, and probably many points, These things separated us from God, and we stood, or perhaps still stand, in the path of God's judgment for sin. We have made ourselves an idol. We are Lord, we think, but we are not. God is. But this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died his perfect life to bear the weight of God's perfect judgment. And by trusting that that sacrifice is sufficient to atone for our sins and to place ourselves again under God's lordship, is, again, to walk in forgiveness, to walk in freedom from justice. To have no faith in Jesus is to remain on the hook for your own sins and to remain standing in the place of judgment. But for those who trust Christ, we raise our Ebenezer, our testimony that God, has, that God in Christ has been victorious over our great enemy, That's what Samuel did for the Israelites, set up a monument as a testimony to remind the people that God had helped them by fighting their battles and winning a stunning victory. And so chapter 7 ends with a summary statement about the judgeship of Samuel. He would go on a circuit of three cities and return home to Ramah. And this he did on an ongoing basis, exercising godly leadership under God's word 
in each place, and so leading all of Israel in worship. Chapter 7 is a wonderful chapter. Repentance, worship, victory, peace, security, leadership, all under God for many years. For many years. I've been told that at the end of my sentences, I tend to drop off. I tend to drop off and get quiet. So I'll try to do better. I'll try to do better. Just kidding. Then comes chapter 8, with Israel taking the initial step onto a slippery slope. It all starts with Samuel taking the unwise step of giving his two sons their own territory to judge a part of Israel. Okay, appointing leaders is not the job even of a godly man like Samuel. It's God's job. Samuel's sons are not judge material. They take bribes. They pervert justice. So the elders come to Samuel and say, no offense, but you're not exactly a spring chicken and your kids are not doing a very good job. And then they make their request that will define their history for the next 600 years. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now, some people make a big deal of the fact that Israel wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So apparently, that wasn't the problem. But Deuteronomy goes on to say, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. See, even though he was a king, the king was not the ruler. God Ruled and he ruled by his word. God's word was to be in the king's back pocket and in his passions and in his thinking. God's word would guard his integrity, would give him humility. This will tell him how to govern and when he was governing poorly. And if he led the people to love God, and love their neighbor, he would be a good and effective king. To have passionate love for God, as our mission statement says, for God and one's neighbor is a litmus test of a community that is built on God's word. And what made Samuel a good judge is that his words were the word of God. The Lord reveals himself to Samuel as Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
And all Israel knew it. They knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But something about this request of the people displeases Samuel. So he took it to the Lord, as any good leader does. And the Lord says, they have not rejected you as leader, as ruler, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So that's the problem. They have rejected God. They don't want a king who will rule them under God. They want a king who will rule them instead of God. And God said, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said that the king would take their sons to ride before his chariots and lead in his armies. He would take their daughters to cook for him and his men, who take a portion of their servants, crops, and herds, exercising his authority not under God, but for his own sake. In short, he will be a parasite. And Samuel said, there will be a time when you regret this day and you will cry out because of your king." And remember, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of a man known to speak for God. This is the word of a man the nation has learned to take seriously, right? The people should have said, oh my goodness, we certainly don't want a king like that. What were we thinking? What do they say? The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the, like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battle. But they already had a king who would do these things. The chapter before, chapter 7, related that God had gone to battle for them. And has saved them from the Philistines. Exodus 15 talks about God's role in the destruction of the Egyptian. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. So why on earth did the Israelites need another human king who would fight their battles? And why do they need to be like the other nations? Numbers 23, Balaam, the prophet, said of Israel that they were the people not counting itself among the nations. That is, they were supposed to be different in the world, but not of the world. They were supposed to demonstrate what it meant to not live like the other nations, to live as a people under God, to live as, as a people blessed by God. But... Isn't it easy to want to be like the other nations? To compare ourselves with the Joneses. I may be smart, but I wish I was like a jock, like so-and-so. I'm glad I have everything I need and some extra, but I wish I could afford a vacation like those people. Even to compare ourselves with other churches. 
churches had that have a bigger congregation or a bigger campus or a bigger budget. We want perfect worship, not too loud, not too soft, with songs that everyone knows, by which we mean songs that I know. A preacher who speaks truth, but is interesting, by which we mean that I find interesting. A church that emphasizes the right things, by which we mean the things that I would emphasize. But you're you. Be who God wants you to be. We're us. Be the best us that God wants us to be. God defines success not by results, but by faithfulness. But apparently the Israelites did not want to be a God, do not want to be who God had called them to be. They wanted a king. And in the next chapter, chapter 9, they're introduced to Saul. The man who will be their king. A man who would sometimes not fight their battles. A man who would, when he did fight, fought their battles unsuccessfully. A man who would not live under God's word, but would routinely disobey. A man under whom the Philistines would be again able to have victory over the Israelites and oppress them. A man who fulfilled Samuel's warning. Instead of man who would rule under God, the God of man who tried to rule in the place of God. God's people had a king that failed. It would not be until David that God's people who would have a king after God's own heart, a king who lived under God's word. Psalm 119, which David wrote, is the longest chapter in the Bible and is a love song to God's law. God's people need a king like David. Actually, David failed too. We need a greater David. Who is our king? Well, you know the answer, Jesus. When he was born, the angel Gabriel said to Mary that Jesus would sit on the throne of David forever. Jesus came to be be a king. Jesus came to be a king of God's people. Wow. Let me say it again. Jesus came to be a king of God's people under God his Father. He was a king who subjected himself to God, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. He was a king who submitted himself under the word of God. In John, he said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And so like Samuel, his words are the very words of God. And as it says in Samuel that God let none of his words fall to the ground, so Jesus could say, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' words never fall to the ground. And he commands us, to have his words remain in us. God has given Jesus Christ to be our king. Jesus reigns over us under God, his father. And at the end of the day, Jesus will take us and present us to God, his father. Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when all things are subject to him, then the Son will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We belong to Jesus, and in him we all belong to God. So again, I ask, who is your king? Is it Jesus? Who are your gods? Is it God? Now, before you too quickly say, oh, that's right, Jesus is my king, God is my God. Okay, let's sing the closing hymn. Think. Is there any element in your life that has the possibility of taking the throne of your heart? Maybe it has, maybe it could, but what is it? Will you lay it down? For me, it's several things. Myself, my comfort, my health, what I would not give to be perfectly healthy. Books, even books could take the throne of my heart. There's been many times where God has called me to spend time with him and read Agatha Christie instead. What are your gods? What is your king? Again, these are not bad things. There's room in our lives for all of these things, even personal health and comfort, but all in subjection to Jesus. Coincidentally, I read this last night. Christ kingship is called. This kingdom of Christ differs from all other kingdoms. For though it is in the world and above all the kingdoms of the world, yet it is not of the world. It is a spiritual and heavenly kingdom bearing rule in and over the souls and consciences of men. It is directly opposite to the kingdom of darkness and of the devil, the prince of this world. For by by his agents, through his ordinances, and by the power of his spirit, he puts down every stronghold, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He brings into captivity every thought to his obedience, having readiness to avenge all disobedience when the obedience of his own subjects shall be fulfilled. This kingdom of Christ is an everlasting kingdom with no end to subject of our king. As at the last day, all that were subject to him in this world, in the kingdom of grace, shall with a holy and glorious subjection reign with him in the world to come, in the kingdom of glory forevermore. It is far, far better to have Jesus for a king, to have God for the king, than to have anyone else or anything else as king of our lives and king of our church. Amen? Oh, yeah. 
Amen. We are going to celebrate communion, and we celebrate it, the sacrifice of Christ, but we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, our King. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Can the elders and the deacons who will help serve communion come forward?